Well, good evening. Glad you guys are here for our final session of The Outsiders. Appreciate you hanging in there through our Politically Incorrect series and then kind of the what do we do now kind of series with Outsiders. So as folks come in, just come on in, take a seat, very informal. Let me go ahead and say a prayer for us and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for bringing us here together as we engage our minds and our hearts. And I pray that your spirit will work in each one of us as we reshape our minds to think the way you think, to look at people the way you look at people. I also thank you for how much you care for us. And I know there are many needs in any group this size. We have cares and concerns. We have praises and joys. And we lift them all up to you. And thank you for being with us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's been a week and a day since the election, and contrary to most of the media predictions, the world has not yet ended. But there's still time, so we'll see how it plays out. Well, you guys know uh, by now, I'm sure, text your questions during class to that number. I think it's also on your handout. I'd like to know what you're thinking and uh, where, where your areas of interest are, and we'll answer as many of those as we can. Let me basically review where we've been. We started in this series called Outsiders, How Christians Thrive in a Secular World. In the first session, we basically laid the foundation making, based on a lot of statistics, really trying to recalibrate the way we think, that Christ followers, not people who identify as Christians, but Christ followers, people who are actively living out their faith, are a minority in America. And that calls for us to recalibrate our thinking a little bit because we have thought of ourselves for so long as the majority value system of America was basically Judeo-Christian. Now, I know that in Oklahoma, it's a little hard to see that, and that's why we looked at the statistics and we begin to realize that actually that is not the value system of the secular culture in which we find ourselves. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because we can hearken back to the time of Jesus and his disciples and realize that's the exact situation into which Jesus came in this world. It's the exact situation, in fact, of the book of 2 Timothy, the second letter that Paul, as he's in prison, awaiting death, writes to Timothy, a young preacher. He writes it in exactly these circumstances. So he talked about the power of the gospel for us to endure, and then we talked about the power of the gospel in the fact that it is true. Let me give you a couple of quotes. First, this is uh, Walter Brueggemann says, in any case, at a quite practical level, the church is no longer a dominant intellectual force in society and no longer can count on cultural reinforcement. This is basically summarizing our first session, and the statistics bear this statement out. The practical signs of that situation, he's going to turn a little critique on the church now for a moment, the practical signs of that situation include the fact that our churches are worried about numbers, a lot of churches declining and dying, particularly the more liberal, I mean, the statistics bear out the more liberal the church, the more quickly it's declining, and the more mainstream denominational churches, historically, that they're worried about numbers and they're worried about money. The loss of force in the office of pastor and the awareness that our foundational claims of faith are increasingly in deep tension with the dominant vision of the day. What does he mean by that? Simple example. Our Claims of faith. In other words, as we take the Bible and we say, what God says is actually true in every sense of the word. But let me give you a small example. Even in a moral realm, if you stand here and say what the Bible says about certain ways of behaving, and God says this is sin and this is healthy, 
you will come into huge tension with our culture. So what Brueggemann is saying is pretty much right on, is that we find ourselves in a place of great tension. Christ followers are a minority. Mark Sayers, I've quoted him a couple of times, he's written an interesting book called Disappearing Church, and it's a commentary on how the church is interacting with this secular world. How are we adapting to this? He said, part of the problem is leaders and believers in the church have unwittingly absorbed the belief that we can both have a strong Christian faith and have social currency within Western contemporary culture without any conflict. In other words, that we can be relevant. We can hold to what we believe to be true, what God says is true, and be a voice in our society with no criticism or critique. He says that is an illusion. We are increasingly at odds with our culture. While the rock of Jesus Christ remains here, the culture is diverging from that. And that's what Sayers is saying. That calls for a different mindset calls for us approaching our world in a little different way. And I hope this series gets us thinking about, not thinking about retreating, not thinking about compromising with the culture, not thinking about being afraid or anxious, but thinking about, well, okay, how did the early church handle this situation? Let's go attack in the same way. Let's go take the gospel to this culture. Maybe we do it in a little different way as a minority. And I think that being a creative minority, we talked about that idea of, Minorities can either retreat from the culture or find creative ways to impact the culture. One of the things we talked about there is that our culture has cracks in it. Tim Keller, I'm going to give you, finish this quote in just a minute, but he says there are two good reasons to the answer of why religion continues to persist and grow. I mean, stop and think about it. If the culture is becoming more hostile to what we believe, and we are becoming a minority, I mean, real Christ followers. That's my phrase for people who, uh, statistically speaking, are, are living out their faith in their life. He says, basically, how do you continue to persist when there's increasing hostility? But the fact is, we are increasing and growing. One explanation is that many people find secular reason, in other words, the story that people, your neighbors who are secular-minded, meaning they live in the here and the now, and God is not a part of their life in any meaningful way, that that story, that secular reason, has things missing that people find necessary for the good life. He said, that's one of the reasons. I call that the cracks in that culture, cracks in that story, holes that people fall into and go, you know what, my vision of the world, of how to have a full life, of how to be happy, how to be prosperous, this, this secular idea is failing me. And I think the church blooms, it blossoms in those cracks of the culture. So, last time, we're kind of coming up to current, we said that we show the truth of the gospel by living out our faith together. This is one of the ways we bloom in the cracks. And I'm going to go on into our next topic, and you're going to see this even in greater relief. But fundamentally, if you go back and look at the early church, they were a minority, the culture was hostile to them at varying degrees, but intense degrees, by the time of 2 Timothy, for example, in the 60s AD. But the early church, what distinguished them? Well, the truth of the gospel that they took, the reality of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for us, his resurrection to eternal life for us, that distinguished them, but the way they lived that out. In other words, they lived as though they believed that was true. 
That resulted in communities that looked radically different. In Acts, it talked about how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. They basically began to model what life looks like when you live like you actually believe what Jesus says is true. And that was hugely powerful. And that is still hugely powerful. As we live out the truth in this community, it is like an oasis in a desert in the desolate places of our culture. That's blooming in the cracks of our culture. Christians have answers. God has answers for things no one else does. We live out our belief. We deny ourselves. We obey Jesus Christ. We forgive. We love. We care about each other and about the world. And that's as powerful today as it was in the first century. That church exploded. And so are Christ followers today around the world. The statistics are overwhelming. If you think about America, you see a relative decline because we used to have a lot of people that identified themselves as Christian and still do. But today, not many really live out that faith. But you get outside the United States into China, get into South America, get into Korea, and you begin to see the church literally, that's a hostile culture, literally blooming in the cracks of that culture. So basically the church grew then, it can grow now, it just takes a little different approach, and one is relying on the truth of the gospel. Well, there's a second reason that the church is thriving. Let's go back to the Keller quote, because I think he hits this nail right on the head. He said, there, one explanation, people find secular reason has cracks in it. In other words, you can't live life well. But another explanation is that great numbers of people intuitively sense a transcendent realm beyond this material world. And this is fascinating. I want you to get your antenna up on this one because this is very true. It's embarrassing if you're a secular person. You should be, Darwinists should be embarrassed that they actually feel this way, but they really do. The average human being senses and desires some kind of transcendence in life, some kind of meaning beyond this world. If you take the secular story, I mean, this is the no God kind of a story. Basically says this, and I'm going to put it in stark terms, but you, you distill it. This is really what the secular worldview is. This life is all you have, and you are one of a kind. Well, actually, no, you're not. You're just another one of six, seven billion people on this earth. You have no innate value or innate meaning whatsoever. You came to the earth People are not going to remember you after you're gone. You're not going to go on after you're gone. There's no inherent meaning in your life. You got here by a random circumstances of evolution, not guided, not, there's nothing intelligent in that. There's nothing special about you. And that's kind of the story of your life. So get out there, have fun, right? That is the secular worldview. Now, people don't live that way, but that's what you think without God you are literally a blip in the cosmos that has no essential meaning. But people want meaning. They desire transcendence. So you will hear your secular friends say things like this. I want to leave the world in a better place than I found it. Why? You're dead. You're gone. You cease to exist. But it makes you feel better about it, right? It's like loving people is a good thing thing to do. 
Make the world better than you found it. You can live on in other people. Like, yes, Terry may be gone now. He may just be dust, and he's completely winked out of existence because there's no life after death, but I'll carry a little piece of Terry in my heart for a few days. I mean, this is how, seriously, you're going to hear a lot of this kind of thing in the culture, and that's because that story ends. It, it has no transcendence. There's nothing beyond this world. And there's a desire in every person to have life mean more than that. It's sort of like the eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. The idea of transcendence, let me give you just a couple of ways to frame what I mean when I say that. A transcendence is the existence or experience beyond the normal or physical level. The scientific worldview, now science is not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if you try to make it something that it's not. Science deals with the present physical world. Materialism, which is the philosophical basis for that, says there's nothing but the physical world. Now that's not a scientific statement, but science operates within that realm. Transcendence is saying there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not all there is. There is something that is not scientifically observable. There's something beyond the normal or physical level. In fact, transcendence says it's beyond the limits of all possible experience and knowledge. In other words, it's a place that science cannot go, not because there's something wrong with science, but because it is beyond the measurable things. Now, I want you to think, I'm not just talking about God, because the average secular person doesn't just say, gosh, I sure wish there was a God. What they really believe in that's transcendent is there has to be meaning. There's love, there's truth, there's beauty. None of those things are empirically observable or measurable. In fact, the Darwinian view would say, love and truth and beauty are chemical reactions in your brain, get over it, right? But people don't believe that. There is this sense that no, there's something about love that goes beyond chemical reactions. There's something about truth that endures beyond just, it's true for me and what's true for you is true for you. People have a desire for something beyond that. Everyone you know has that desire. That's what Keller is saying, is people desire transcendence. So here's my first contention. People long for meaning beyond what a secular world can deliver. This takes two basic forms, I, I think, and that is people long for meaning in their life that transcends the average getting up, going to work, playing soccer with your kids on Saturday, watching Monday night football, and is this all there is? You know, 70 years, 80 years, and then we die. In other words, people really long for meaning and people long for love, long for relationships, for community. Both of those things are transcendent. They're beyond what you can measure. They're beyond what chemicals happen in your brain. People long for meaning beyond what a secular world can deliver. This is one of the funniest signs I have ever seen. This is a real sign. I believe this is uh, in Portland. I may be getting this wrong. Look at this. A secular celebration of life. This is Atheist Church. That's basically what this is. Atheist Church. Join us under the big tent for the first annual Sunday Assembly Revival. Sunday, really? I mean, that's just so obvious you're trying to be a church. Sunday Assembly Revival, a celebration of the one life we know we have. In other words, this is it. We live and then we die, but we've got to find some meaning. We've got to celebrate this. 
Enjoy an outdoor afternoon of fun and inspiration with live pop songs and thought-provoking speakers. In other words, atheist church. Let's get together and let's somehow look for meaning in this one life we know we have. That just reeks of a desire for transcendence. If you're a perfectly satisfied atheist and you don't need God, why do you need this? Because people long for something beyond it. This is community. Why do people look at a church who aren't religious and they admire? One thing they admire is the fact that Christians do good things. You are forgiving and loving. I mean, I know that people criticize the church and we don't always live up to Christ's standard, but really you think about what do people look at and go, well, I don't believe in God, but I got to tell you, I admire that. Two things typically is what I hear from people. One is, well, you guys are doing good in the world. You must believe something about your God to be doing this good in the world. And the second is, wow, I would really like to be part of a loving, forgiving, caring community like this. That's how most people come to Christ. Is they, like, just like the early church, they say, wow, I want to be part of that community. This is a desire to build community. This is a symptom of that desire for something more in life, something transcendent in life. That leads me to this interesting chart. I put this on your handout. This isn't exactly on point, but I just thought this was too interesting not to put it in there. One of the things our, our world is for is you ask most people what they're looking for, they want to be happy. What they mean by that is I actually want meaning in my life. I want fulfillment in my life. But when you ask people, would you like to have a happy life or a meaningful life? And here's one of the ways to ask it. They ask this question, would you rather live a low-stress, low-achievement life or a high-stress, high-achievement life? If you look on the far left, 50%, some of them opted out. You obviously have 50%, one, 25 the other. Some people couldn't even figure out what they wanted to do, right? It was just too stressful to answer this question. But basically, 50% said, I want to be a Walmart greeter. Right? And I'm not, I don't knock Walmart greeters. I aspire to that job someday. That is a low-stress job, and you can just say hi to everybody. But they basically said 50% of the population would choose low-stress, low-achievement. Look at those age groups. Every age group follows that trend and says, oh, I'll do low-stress, low-achievement over high-stress, except the 18 to 24-year-olds. And you know why that is, don't you? Because they're 18 to 24-year-olds, right? They have yet to figure this out. But you, if it's interesting when you ask people this question, they think, I mean, what is this saying to us? I think I'll be happier if I don't have stress, and I think I'll even trade achievement. You know, that, but see, that just belies the secular story. What would be the secular vision of the successful person? Somebody who makes a mark in the world, somebody who makes an impact. Well, I hate to tell you this, but well over 50% of the people don't care about that. In other words, that story has a crack in it. It's not very appealing to people. So this idea of happy versus a meaningful life. In fact, there was a recent study of millennials. Let me define what a millennial is. A millennial, there are different definitions, but this is the one that I prefer. They're just going to vary a little bit. People who were born between 1980 and the year 2000, right? So maybe from what? 16-year-olds to 36-year-olds, roughly, today. Those are called the millennial generation. Ask them... What is the most important goal in your life? 50 per, it's a very secular generation, by and large. 50% of them said, I want to be famous. More than 80% of them said, I want to be rich. And obviously, I don't want to be stressed while I'm doing it, right? 
But it's very interesting that you see this secular narrative shaping itself to fame and riches is what will give me happiness and maybe even meaning. There's been an interesting study I want to tell you about. Uh, I don't know that, that this gets a lot of publicity, but it should. There was as a study that has been going on for 75 years. It's, uh, it's based out of Harvard. And uh, the guy who's heading it now is the fourth guy to head it. In other words, it's an ongoing study for 75 years. 75 years ago, they picked 724 men. They've since expanded this a little, but here's the core thing. 724 men. At that time, some of them were from Harvard, so more socioeconomic. But they also went to the Boston slums and chose a number of men there. They have been following those men for 75 years. There are actually only 60 of that original group still alive. Again, they've expanded this to include women, to include the children. There's over 2,000 people in the study right now. But that original group, they followed them through 75 years. And they followed them studying, asking this question, what are the factors that lead to a healthy and happy life? So they just watched how their lives turned out. They would, every year, they would do a survey. They would track how much money they make, where they worked. Uh, are they married? Are they not married? Do they have kids? Are their, you know, kids' uh, GPA above average? You know, whatever. You know, they measured everything about them and then did interviews and said, how did your life turn out? So after 75 years, you get a lot of looking back and draw some conclusions. Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the number one factor that led to the happiest and healthiest lives amongst them. And by the way, this had nothing to do with their health. You would think health, good health and long life would be up there. That's actually not even near the top, but it's certainly not number one. You would think affluence and comfort, security, financial security would be up there. It's actually not a determinant of this either. This is a secular study, and it's a good study. I mean, it's going on a long time. The number one thing is that strong relationships are the best predictor of a happy and healthy life. Strong relationships. Now, let me tell you what they mean when they say strong relationships, because they don't just mean good marriages. They mean friendships, community, certainly marriages for those who are married, but this is not exclusive to married people, but basically relationships that are strong in this sense. They are enduring and they are people with whom you can go through the ups and the downs of life together. That makes sense? That's what they consider a strong relationship. Not that, oh, I love my wife more than you love your wife. It's more of a, are we doing life together? And when I hit the lows, do you lessen the lows? All of us with each other. And when I hit the highs, are we doing this together? It's that participatory community. That is the number one factor for happiness. It's not getting rich, it's not being famous, it's not even being healthy, it's not even having a smooth life. It's not whether you came from Harvard or you came from the Boston slums. And I think that's interesting that the secular world begins to see that, and that begins to change that narrative a little bit. What does it go back to? The very truth that God always knew. When people in the secular world look at what you have, living out in community the truth of the gospel, they realize this is not only true, this is healthy. That's why overall Christ followers are healthier, happier. Again, I'm not talking about circumstances. I'm talking about the longevity and the happiness in life. So it's a very interesting study, and I think it really rocked people's world a little bit. 
So happiness, quality relationships. You know what they also found? This is a corollary of that. Loneliness kills. Loneliness kills. People who feel lonely, and I don't mean by lonely meaning you, you live off like a hermit. More than one in five Americans say that they are lonely in studies. Isn't that interesting? So that's not living out there all by yourself, I have no friends. It's more of a, you can be lonely in the midst of this high-tech, high-paced, secular world in which we live. You can be lonely trying to live out a secular dream that's unfulfilling. And so loneliness kills. Loneliness is what makes people really unhappy in life. And I thought that was very interesting because it so ties into something that we already know because as we read the scriptures, that's what God has already told us. He said, I designed you the way to follow me, and I designed you to do it together. Interesting study. As far as what makes a meaningful life, they didn't even try to measure that because, frankly, they have no idea what makes a meaningful life. It's very difficult in the secular worldview to construct something that works for everybody as far as what is a meaningful life. Mark Sayer says this, this is a culture in which we believe that ultimately life is meaningless. And by the way, let me make an editorial comment. If you, you have to believe that. I mean, you just, you, just can, you just have to see that in our world. But first of all, and I'm not going to jump on this because we've already talked about it in our last series, but the lack of which our secular culture cares for the unborn is very, very indicative of what they think about the meaning of life, the significance of life. And now, if you noticed in this past election, kind of under the radar, I think we talked about this also in our last series, but uh, end-of-life care. Usually these bills are talked about as uh, death with dignity laws. They're basically assisted suicide uh, laws that say you can die when you want to die and a physician uh, can help you die. It's not against the law to commit suicide, basically. That passed in several more states. And so what you see is a trend in the secular culture toward early life, end of life, arguably those sections of life that are the least useful and productive for the culture. Please don't think I insulted you if you're older. I'm just saying from a secular point of view, once you get outside the range of being able to be economically productive, you begin to see really less concern for that. That is exactly indicative of what Sayers is saying. Ultimately, the secular story believes that life is meaningless, but we are insulated from the full horror of such a belief because most of your friends won't say, yeah, I believe life is meaningless, but they do. They're just grabbing onto something. He said, you know, one of the things we grab onto in America is we anesthetize ourselves. He said, our existential angst, which is just a word that basically says, I don't want to think about the meaninglessness of life is drowned out by cooking shows, discount airfares, smartphones, and celebrity gossip. That is so true. In 1985, a guy named Neil Postman wrote a book. It's a brilliant book. I'd urge you to read it if you're interested in this kind of topic. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. And what Postman is saying is that in American culture, we have a story of the meaning of life, the secular story, and it's a story that has huge cracks in it. And that's very difficult to face. And so we look for distractions. That's what Sayers is saying, is that we anesthetize ourselves in our culture. That's why 
I don't want to offend anybody because I like Monday night football too, but that's why. Celebrities is such a big part of our culture. Sports is such a big part of our culture. Not that there's something innately wrong, but if you just look at a step back and look at a mirror, you got to realize, man, we put way more emphasis on things. I mean, we pay teachers here. We pay non-productive celebrities here, right? What is that saying? We're looking for a distraction. And that's what Postman is saying. That's what Sayers is saying. So basically, the culture really has a trouble with trying to find some kind of meaning in a transcendent way. But here's my second contention. The gospel, and this is the opportunity for Christ followers, and it's always been true of the church. The gospel is the link to a transcendent God and ultimate meaning. In other words, everybody you know is really looking for meaning in life. Now, they may express it in a lot of different ways. I want community. I need friends. I need stronger relationships. I need to heal my marriage. I need to heal my job. I need to take care of my health. All of that is trying to put this in a framework of how do I deal with life without any higher purpose or meaning. That one thing that every human being is craving because they've been designed to crave that is God fills that hole. In other words, the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, is the one thing. It's that link to something beyond ourselves, to something transcendent. Does that make sense? The culture is struggling with meaning, and the gospel is filled with meaning. James K. Smith says this, and this is an interesting observation. He says it's not enough to ask how we got permission to stop believing in God, because a lot of people functionally don't believe in God in any meaningful way. We need to also inquire about what emerged to replace such a belief. Because it's not that our secular age is an age of disbelief, and this is very true, and uh, this is something we really need to think about. It's an age of believing differently, believing in other things. We cannot tolerate in a world, living in a world without meaning. This is what Keller said, and he's right on. People cannot really tolerate living a story, a secular story with no transcendent meaning. So it's not that people said, I'm going to become an atheist and I no longer believe in God at all. And in fact, I'm very comfortable with the fact that my life has no meaning and when I die, I'm gone and you won't remember me. People aren't doing that. What they're saying is, is I reject God for various reasons and I'm looking for something else to believe in, something else that can fulfill that desire. It is an age of believing otherwise. We can't tolerate living in a world without meaning. So if the transcendence that previously gave significance to the world is lost, in other words, if God is not where people are going to find meaning in the world, we need a new account of meaning, a new imaginary, a new idea, a new story that enables us to imagine a meaningful life within this now self-sufficient universe of gas and fire. That is what everybody you know is looking for. Everybody you know is looking for I need some kind of story that makes sense out of this. And for whatever reason, I prefer that it not be God. And that's usually some kind of interaction that people have had, some kind of disappointment. But people are looking for what you have. I know sometimes when you pick up the paper, it's like, well, atheists say they don't need God, and none of my neighbors think they need God, so it's kind of hopeless. I got nothing for them. That's not actually true. It's not that they want to settle for this little secular story that's so flawed. They're desperately searching for something, another belief system. In other words, they're desperately searching for what you have. And that is what makes such a great opportunity for Christ followers. That's why the church is thriving. As people try thing after thing after thing, they come back to the one truth that really does provide 
meaning. So, how do people decide what to believe? It's not that your neighbors believe nothing. They're trying to find something to believe that makes sense out of all of this. So how do people decide those things? This is a beautiful, I like this painting a lot. And this is a 400 year old painting, but this so captures, you'll see this in a lot of modern art too. But I like this painting for this reason. This Christ on the cross is different. I mean, there are a million paintings of Christ on the cross, but El Greco really captures, and this is what he's trying to capture, the secular world. What you see in this picture is a picture of suffering and a picture of death. And if you don't believe in God, this is a tragedy. This is an injustice. It's a tragedy. It's heartbreaking. But you notice that on this cross, Jesus is looking up out of the frame of the picture. Where is Jesus finding meaning or transcendence in what is happening? He's looking outside the picture. He's looking outside the frame of this picture. That's exactly captures the gospel. What is the gospel? It is showing you what's outside the frame. If you're in my life as a painting or a picture and we kind of work within those bounds, the gospel is showing you what's outside that picture. This beautifully captures what everybody is looking for. How do I get outside this life I've got and make sense of it? So, how does Christ answer this? I want to jump back into our scripture a little bit. I want to take this all the way back to the Apostle Paul. I don't know how much you remember about the Apostle Paul. This is he's writing to Timothy at this time. He's in prison. He's going to be killed. I mean, he, and he knows that he's not going to get out of prison, that Nero's going to kill him, and he does. Cuts his head off shortly, likely very shortly after this is written. So here's the story with Paul. Paul is a really prosperous guy who's not a Christian. He's an up-and-a-comer. He's persecuting the Christians. He's rising politically in the Jewish ranks. He's doing well in the world. He has an encounter, literally, with Jesus Christ, and his life completely changes trajectory. His reputation is left behind. His livelihood is left behind. His friends are left behind. His family is left behind. And he begins to embark on this new path of truth. He sees the truth of Jesus Christ and he embarks on the new path. And he's writing to Timothy at the end of his life and he says, you know about my teeth. He says, Timothy, I know you're a minority. I know the world is hostile. I know you're out there preaching the truth and I want you to remember this. You know my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, the endurance, the persecution, the sufferings. He said, you know what things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. In other words, he said, expect to be a minority, and that's okay. In fact, uh, in Lystra, one of the cities he went through, let me read you this from, this is Acts chapter 14. Paul just underestimates everything. So basically... He goes to Lystra, he's going town to town, and he's preaching the good news of the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ. Well, it's just riling people up. Tons of people believe it. That causes tons of other people to be hostile to him. He said, the Jews from Antioch came up to Iconium, and they persuaded the crowds that Paul was a troublemaker, so they stoned him. Basically, everybody pick up a stone, throw stones at him, literally throw stones at him until he's dead. And so they... Thought he's dead, he's laying there. They kind of know what dead looks like. And they dragged him out of the city and just left him there. But when the disciples gathered around him, he got up, he's not dead, entered the city, went to the AMPM clinic. No, actually, I put that part in there. He entered the city, 
And then on the next day, he went on to the next town and did it again. I mean, I want you to think about this. Let me tell you a little more of his story, then I'll make this point, because this is truly astounding. So that's his adventures to that point. Now, in another passage, he's talking about this. He said, look, I'm just going to, he said, I don't want to brag about this. He said, I feel bad about even saying this. He said, I'm out of my mind to even say this, but I have to point this out. He said, look, all these people that are complaining about it, I've worked harder, I've been in prison more frequently, I've been flogged more severely, I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, that would be from the Romans. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, bandits, my own countrymen, Gentiles, from the city, in the country, in danger at sea in danger from uh, betrayals. I've labored and toiled. I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've gone without food. I've been cold and I've been naked. Now, I just have to ask you one question. Why does anybody do that? That is not the secular story of the good life. You know, that's like the Shackleton expedition. You remember that expedition? Ernest Shackleton, early in the 20th century, needs some guys to go on this expedition. And I'll paraphrase it for you, but he puts an ad in the paper. And that paper says, it says this, we're going on a, a voyage that's extremely difficult, very hazardous. In fact, you'll probably die. Who wants to sign up? I mean, that's what the Christian story looks like. Paul says, hey, this is my life. You guys want to join me? That makes no sense in the secular world whatsoever. But this is what Paul does, and he does it to death. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says to Timothy, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The Jews would make a drink offering. They would literally take things and pour it out and say, Lord, that's a, a sacrifice to you. He says, that's my life. He said, my life is at the point of being poured out as an offering to Christ. Beautiful passage. And the time for my departure is near. Yep, Nero's going to kill you. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. What's he looking at? He's outside the frame now, isn't he? He doesn't say, but you know what, Timothy? After I die, you're going to remember me. After I die, everybody's going to say, that Paul, he was a good guy. After I die, the world's going to be a little better place than when I lived. He, he doesn't settle for that. He looks outside the frame. He said, I know there's a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and I will live forever. Paul endures. Paul is able to do what he does, just like every Christ follower, because of the transcendence of what he believes. That is the fulfilling life. This is the same guy who, when he was in prison once before, wrote the book of Philippians, and it, all it talks about is joy. It talks about, I have incredible joy every time I think of you. How do you put those two together? You don't in the secular frame. You can only do it with the truth of something beyond this. Transcendence is the key. And then finally, it doesn't even require that things go your way. He said, you know, at my first defense, which is, no, I mean, he's in front of the emperor. This is like the most powerful man in the world. Nobody came to my support. Everybody was afraid, and they deserted me. He said, that's all right. I don't hold that against them. The Lord was at my side and gave me strength. Remember that God with us idea? So that through the mess, to me, the message might be fully proclaimed and everybody might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. He'll bring me safely where? In my life? No, he'll bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. 
The Bible is infused with the idea that you cannot have meaning in life without understanding the transcendence of life. That's what's wrong with the secular story. That's what everybody you know is looking for. Okay? So here's pretty much where you see everybody in the world. I want to know the meaning of life. And they said, well, in the secular frame, Google's your best bet. All right? In other words, get out there. And by the way, I would challenge you and encourage you, because I did this, uh, actually I've done it before, but I did it again today, and Google what is the meaning of life, or Yahoo or Bing or whatever your favorite search engine is. It's interesting what comes up. What comes up will demonstrate everything we've just been talking about is true. You'll see things like this. This Pablo Picasso quote is really popular. Um, life, uh, basically, li uh, li the meaning of life is basically to recognize the gift you have and then give it away. Ah, oh, it sounds so good. Nobody understands what that actually means in real life, but it sounds good. You know, a meaning of life is making the world a better place. The meaning of life is touching people, and that goes on. These, all these stories that we're talking about, if you Google what's the meaning of life, you're going to get things that fit inside this secular frame. And they're not very satisfying. And they're kind of things you find on fortune cookies, and they last about as long as the fortune cookie. You know, I mean, they just aren't there with you for very long because there's no transcendence. Everybody acts like they believe there's more. So I thought I'd kind of end this uh, time, enough time here just to tell you. I'm going to tell you a little bit of, of my story because I'm definitely that guy. I grew up in, uh, and this doesn't prove my point, I'm just a very typical person in this regard. Actually, Laura says, no, you're not typical at all. You're not even normal. But whatever, I'm normal in this regard. As a young man, I didn't grow up in church. I grew up in a religious family, but it wasn't, it was kind of like that 73% that says I'm Christian, but not part of the 31% that actually lives it out. And I love my parents. They became Christ followers later in life. So I say this not with any sense of angst. I simply tell you that as a young man, I grew up in a pretty secular worldview. And then later in my life, I definitely pursued a more secular worldview. In fact, I was very into science and mathematics. My degrees are in mathematics. My training is in that way. And so I really saw that everything that could be answered in life needed to be done so in a logical way, that science had to provide the answers to life because feelings couldn't be trusted. I wasn't prepared to follow anybody's God, the Hindu God, the Buddhist gods, the Christian God, or anybody else, is I was going to live a life that was basically fact-based. You know a lot of people that will say this today. I want to live a life based on facts, not feelings. I don't want just faith. I want reality. I want scientific truth. That was me. And so let me tell you where that leads you. It doesn't lead everybody you know here, but that's just because they're not being honest. That leads you to one place. leads you to being an agnostic. Agnosticism is the logical end of trying to live out the scientific worldview in a transcendent world. Agnosticism basically is two flavors of agnosticism. They're the really serious agnostics who said, not only do I not know if there's a God or if there's any meaning in, world, in the world, it's not knowable, so just forget it. The milder form, which is for baby agnostics, is this. It says, I just don't know. Maybe there's a real God, maybe there's real meaning, but if there is, I don't know what it is. Either way, you begin to live your life, and, you, and for a while I felt really comfortable. Like, yeah, 
I'm a scientific guy. If it isn't scientific, I don't believe it. I'm not chasing off after faith or fantasy or any of that kind of thing. I'm pretty scientific. Until it hit me one day, this whole issue comes in, and I thought, so let's just play that out in your head, Terry. Is this what your life looks like? And when you get to the end of your life and you look back and you say, well, I've led a kind of scientific life, first of all, I was beginning to see the cracks in that story, that it really didn't answer all the questions. When you get to the end of your life, what's the point? What's the meaning? Is that really all there is? Are you comfortable that that's really all there is? And then I realized, you know what? Deep down in me, I have to admit this isn't logical, but I'm not comfortable that that's all there is. I'm not okay with that, just like everybody else. There's got to be more to this than that. And then the second thing, and this was in a moment of clarity, I realized I don't actually live like an agnostic. And in fact, no one does. No one lives that way because you know what? I realized every one of us acts like we believe certain things that we cannot prove are true. Everybody believes in something they cannot prove to be true. Every scientist you know, every agnostic you know, every atheist you know. We, you cannot actually even function in life based on only the things that you can prove to be true because that's a tiny little narrow thing. And I realized I don't act like an agnostic. I'm just not examining what I have faith in. I have faith in certain people. I have faith that truth exists, that love exists, that kindness is a good thing, that beauty is desirable. Where do I get that idea? I can't scientifically demonstrate any of that, and yet I believe it to be true. And I realize everyone believes things. And that's when it hit me. Who's going to decide what I believe? somebody is programming those beliefs. It's not science. I'm acting like I believe in a lot of things I can't prove. Well, that set me off on a quest to find out very well then. If I'm going to believe things that I can't prove, I will choose those things. So I set out on a quest of examining every major religion and belief system that I could find. Everything from the pure reason of Immanuel Kant to the yoga of the Hindus became a Buddhist for a while, which I have to say, that was fun, but ultimately totally meaningless, but very appealing to the Western mind. So a Buddhist for a while, and then finally, because I was raised kind of in this environment, I waited till last, because I just didn't want to be a Christian, right? I finally said, I gotta at least give this a try, and so I dive into the New Testament, and I start reading it. And at the end of the day, in my little scientific mind, it became clear to me that if you lined all of this stuff up, that is a better explanation of the reality of life than any other explanation. Leaving faith out of it, even leaving feelings out of it, which you can't entirely, but that makes sense of life like nothing else makes sense of life. That's my story. That's a lot of people's story. Now, many other people are drawn into that investigation because of you. They say, you know what, I'm kind of a science guy, I don't know about this God thing, but I do know that I want to be a part of what you have. And then you come here, and then we'll open the scripture together, and we'll reason together. And I believe that people, as they study, will find what I found. You pursue truth far enough, God is there. Just pursue your science as far as it will go, pursue truth as far as it will go, and I'm a big fan of that, because I'm really comfortable. The end of my goal, it was God that was standing there at the end. It wasn't Buddha, it wasn't you know, the secular uh, scientists or anything. It was God at the end of that story. 
That's what you as Christ followers offer the culture. And that's what everybody you know is looking for, even though they're desperate to find something else, is that the truth of the gospel provides meaning and sense of life. So Christians aren't just people who are bowled over emotionally. They aren't just people who have jumped into the darkness in blind faith. Our faith makes sense of life because it's true and because it provides that sense of transcendence. So as I think about what we've talked about, I mean, you can tell I'm pretty passionate about this and I want to encourage you because we started on the note that, you know what, we're not the majority in our country. And you should expect, as Paul said, that the hostility will probably get worse before it gets better. But I want you to take heart because the truth that we hold has always exploded in cultures like this. The transcendent answers to the meaning of life that you have and that you live out in this community is overwhelmingly attractive to this culture. The church will thrive. The church will grow. Jesus Christ will be lifted up. Be sure of that above anything else. And what do you and I have to do? We just go live out the truth that we believe and as articulately as we can, just give a reason for why we believe it. Okay, so that's your assignment. Can you guys do that this week? Okay. Well, next, we finished this series, and I hope it's planted some seeds in your mind to think about. I hope it starts just thinking about, I'm not really that worried about being relevant to the culture. I'm not worried about trying to live in the, on the basis of the culture. I think I'll just go back to basics and go live out the truth of Jesus Christ, and let's let the world watch us while we do it, and powerful things will happen. Next series will be November 30th, 7th, and 14th. It'll be in the atrium. It's kind of a special Christmas series that we do. Then we'll be back in here January 11th. We've talked about politics, talked about the Old Testament, giving you this talk about being a minority, and about the truth of the gospel, and I just feel the need to talk about Jesus. January, we're going to talk about the parables of Jesus, which is the best way to get the breadth of Jesus' teaching and the brilliance of articulating the gospel to people. I think you'll find it just lights up your faith as we go through some of these stories in ways you may not have thought about before. And we'll put it in this setting, and we'll say, this is the story that's going to overwhelm this culture. Thanks for being here with this. Thanks for hanging in here with me. And I hope, if nothing else, it's caused us to think and recalibrate our minds. So thank you guys, and I'll see you later.